If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Wait, I'm not even sure if this is on. Hello? Hello? Blink if you can hear me. Ah, excellent. Well, all right then, let's begin. This is Deeply Human. I'm your host, Dessa. And today, I have donned the complete podcaster's dress uniform. The petticoat, the bandolier, the two-and-a-half-cornered hat, the broadsword, the garter belt, the whole nine yards. Well, ten, if you count the train. The inquiry at hand, why do we care so much about what other people wear? Now, you might be thinking, I don't care what other people wear. But imagine for a moment that your sister shows up in a long white dress to somebody else's wedding. Or to your wedding. Or that your first night with your new roommate reveals that he sleeps in a softball uniform. Or let's say I start telling the story of a friend who showed up to divorce court in fishnets, a basketball jersey, and a glow stick necklace. Wouldn't you lean in just a little to find out what is going on with these people? If I talk to a lot of my colleagues, they'll say, well, I know nothing about fashion. You know, it's one of the first things that they'll say to establish that they're not wasting their time on stuff that's trivial or insignificant. I I don't agree with that at all. That is Professor Richard Thompson Ford, and he's an intellectual who cares quite a bit about fashion. Thank you very much. He professes at Stanford Law School, but he was driven by his sartorial interest to write a book called Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Made History. When tailoring really began to develop as a skill in Western Europe, what you see is the re-sculpting of the body in order to present like a different type of body, the cinched waist, the dramatic skirts, the big shoulders. All of the powerful institutions in these societies are doing this, whether it's the church or the state. And all of these things are communicating in societies where most of the population is illiterate. So the communication is done visually. It's as though early fashion aimed to create the impression that rich and powerful people were fundamentally different sorts of creatures. Like, think of those insane standing white collars that monarchs wore in their portraits. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I, late 1500s, that kind of thing. Imagine putting one of those on for the first time. Uh, I look like a freaking... Cobra, and this is awesome. Okay, new rule. Only I am allowed to wear Cobra stuff. Well, me and some of my friends. 
you had laws that specified no one below the rank of a knight of the garter may wear a certain type of silk or a certain type of ermine fur or trim. And you talk about like how emotional the responses to this stuff was. I mean, in the very opening of your book, you talk about like a fashion faux pas that has children screaming in the streets. Women are fainting. Dogs are freaking out. A dude's arm is broken because another guy wore a silk hat, (laughs) right? Like, we have feels on this. One proclamation declared that there would be guards posted at the gates of the cities with a list of people according to their social rank to make sure that no one dressed above their social condition. It's worth noting that we still have fashion guards posted at some gates, like brawny bouncers at swanky nightclubs serving side-eye to your graphic tee and denying entry to anybody in athletic shoes. And dress codes still function to distinguish social classes. Okay, we're pivoting the microphone here to a woman named Liz Wise. She works for DeBretz as an etiquette advisor. If, like me, you are a lowly commoner, you may not be familiar with the name DeBretz. However, if you are a member of British aristocracy, presumably listening to this podcast while polishing your monocle, you will know it as an institution that's been concerned with hereditary titles and minding manners since 1769. Nowadays, people can go to Debrett's for advice. Someone has been invited to a fancy function, say, and they're not sure what would be appropriate to wear. Liz and her colleagues swoop to the rescue, like Batman, Batmen, Bat-people, for formal wear. I asked Liz to run down the dress codes that her clients might encounter. Absolutely most formal is white tie. Then there's black tie, which is much more common. There's also morning dress, which in the UK is the dress code for weddings primarily, but also for events like Royal Ascot. Naturally. And then going down the hierarchy, there's lounge suits. And then there's the most difficult one of all, I think, which is smart casual. (laughs) I'll note that Liz deals primarily with UK dress codes. When I asked about business casual, Liz suggested perhaps a lounge suit would be appropriate. And I broke it to her gently that in the US, Crocs and board shorts might be closer to the mark. Formal posh parties, however, have more exacting standards. And those standards hit different depending on your gender. All the dress codes for men are very, very prescriptive. All the formal ones, they comprise of a very sort of detailed breakdown of tailored garments and what the shirt should be like, what the tie should be like, what the buttons should be like, what the cufflinks should be like. It's absolutely codified to the nth degree. Scrolling through DeBrett's social media accounts, the level of detail on dudes' suits is pretty nutso. Tuck shirts should be made of special Marcella cotton because it's super stiff and can hold a mess of starch. Bow ties should always be tied a little bit imperfectly to prove their hand done, just like how very important people smudge their signatures to prove it's penned in real ink. To state the obvious, these dress codes have a very old-fashioned idea of gender and all sorts of people can cut a sharp figure in a suit. Shout out Janelle Monet, And ooh, Ann Lister from Gentleman Jack. Total fox. But a lot of this stuff sounds like a needlessly complicated Victorian costume party. Relics of a long-gone era and an aristocratic worldview that has fallen way out of favor. Like, 
Are formal dress codes really doing much for us these days? Historically, there was an absolute assumption that everybody had these clothes and they knew precisely when to wear them. But of course, I think for a lot of people, when they're presented with a very sort of stiff formal invitation with a dress code specified, in this day and age, it can be quite an oppressive thing, can't it? Because for an awful lot of us, we don't have, you know, a morning coat or a tuxedo or whatever in, in our wardrobe. But I do think you just have to interpret them as a rather nice kind of very intermittent aspirational thing. Sometimes it is nice to just discard your everyday clothes and put on something you would never normally wear. You're not pretending to be somebody you're not. It's just, it is dressing up and that's nice. Mm. And now, valued listener, a quick personal aside. For most of my professional life, I've worked as a gigging musician, something to fall back on if the whole nerdy podcast stuff doesn't pan out. As it happens, I recently received an invitation to perform at a masquerade gala fundraiser thing that specified black tie. My bandmate Abby and I weren't quite sure what that should entail. And so now, drunk on power, I'm going to wrest the controls of this podcast away from our dutiful producer. Sorry, Beth. Door's locked and exploit this interview for my own shallow end. I need some advice, so I'm showing Liz a potential outfit to get an expert opinion. This is one of my um, classic LBDs, my little black dresses. That would be absolutely fine, yeah. But is it in any universe acceptable that I wear that with motorcycle boots? (laughs) I'm gonna show you the boots. Wait, Liz, just open your heart, open your mind. No. The general recommendation would be that you'd wear it with heels. Maybe something a little less sort of clunky. I mean, in a way, the way a woman interprets black tie is to do with their character and personality. And if they can carry it off, maybe you can wear the motorcycle boots because you're wearing a very, very nice little black dress. But, you know, it's not by the book, put it that way. So, like, as long as I ride a motorcycle into the event... Secondhand dress and a rented Ducati. We've got a plan. If you had one golden rule, what would it be? You'll never, ever enjoy a social event if you're physically uncomfortable. So, you know, whatever you choose to wear, just just make sure that it fits, that you can move around in it, that you can sit down with it. I mean, that's the absolute goal, really. That you can make your entrance, you can look great, and then you can just forget about it. I'm wearing the motorcycle boots. Not all of our choices about what to wear amount to simple decisions of personal taste or comfort. Some fashion is policed by, like, actual police. Back to Richard, our Stanford law professor. For instance, there are a lot of cities in the United States where, you know, sagging pants are outlawed and people are arrested and fined for wearing sagging pants. In Fort Worth, Texas, the Public Transportation Authority banned riders who wore low-slung trousers with signs that said, pull them up or find another ride. Most of us, however, are more likely to run into a dress code as part of our job. In 2004, a U.S. court upheld the firing of a bartender from a Reno casino because she violated their rule that, and I quote, lip color must be worn at all times. 
and other employees have objected to mandatory high heels or a prohibition on men wearing long hair. Sidebar. Yes, we know Reno Casino sounds like a scene from a Danny DeVito feature. So we still have rules like that, but they're being enforced by the private sector more than the government. As part of the research for his book, Richard sat down to talk and listen to high school students because kids are actually often subject to some of the more intense modern dress codes. Lots of credit card rules about, you know, the skirt's got to be no more than a credit card's length away from the knee. There are dress codes banning yoga pants. And the thing is that in each of these instances, whether or not the dress code is enforced can depend on the girl's body. Two girls could show up to homeroom wearing the exact same outfit, but only one of them gets hit with a dress code violation. The teachers would even say, well, honey, she can get away with that, but you've got a different body. Right. So it's all about that and just and, and not distracting the boys. It's up to you not to wear something that's going to be distracting to men. I first ran into that particular edict at about eight years old when I wore a skort to Sunday school. And if you're not a child of the 80s or a tennis pro, a skort is a hybrid garment, half skirt, half shorts. Cousin to the spork and contemporary to the crimping iron. So, as soon as I arrived to class in my sea green skort, which fell just above my knees, the religious instructor ejected me from the room, sent me out to the playground, and called my dad. And when dad showed up, I was on a swing, not swinging. I got kicked out, I told him. He took my hand. Come on, kiddo. We went back into the building together. I hadn't ever heard my dad angry on my behalf, and it was thrilling. The instructor explained that the dress code had been clearly communicated. We don't allow young girls to wear skirts, because if young girls wear skirts, the older girls are tempted to wear skirts. And if the older girls wear skirts, the older boys will be tempted to sin against them. My dad thought this argument was hot garbage, and his response included the phrase sexual hang-ups. We left then, my head held high, in escorted victory march to the car. As girls get older, however, Richard describes a sort of catch-22. You either risk being branded as a temptress, or you're not done up enough to be presentable. The dress code for women doesn't always leave a safe place to land in the middle. Richard says that was actually the thing that surprised him most during the course of his research. I'd say, yeah, its function is to keep women off balance. Its function isn't to make women modest or to make them sexy or pleasing. It's to make it so that they could never get it right. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Dress codes aren't just about what's being worn, but who's wearing it. Gender, race, class, some of our most complicated social dynamics are sewn right in. One thing that you know I found is that there's a lot more strict enforcement in a lot of instances in poorer schools, in schools that have heavily you know, black or Latino populations. 
on the one hand, that's unfair because those kids are getting sent home from school more often than, you know, rich white kids. On the other hand, you can see that some of the school administrators are trying to make sure that those kids know how to dress professionally and appropriately so that they can get good jobs later. And so it's not all malevolent. Some of it's kind of trying to deal with the world as it is rather than the world as it should be. But the idea that kids from marginalized backgrounds can dress up to get ahead is way too simple. Richard's book delves deep into the long and complicated intersections of clothing and race relations. Richard himself is black, and his dad actually trained as a tailor alongside his college degree. People of color often learned a backup trade in case racism thwarted their professional plans. Not all that long ago, black people in the U.S. could be penalized for dressing too well. After World War II, Racist mobs would attack black servicemen wearing their service dress uniforms for being uppity. People were threatened by black people wearing refined and elegant clothing. They saw it as an attack on white supremacy. They were angry that you had black people who were dressed better than white people because that clothing communicated to everyone that the wearer deserved respect and dignity. In the 1950s and 60s, civil rights protesters often wore their Sunday best to marches or to lunch counter sit-ins, where they could reasonably expect to be met with every variety of indignity, if not violence, police dogs, batons, and fire hoses. More recently, writers and activists have critiqued that sort of protest dress code with the term respectability politics. They argue that no one should have to dress up to prove that they warrant humane treatment and equal rights. And doing so amounts to a concession to the mainstream oppressive culture. But Richard doesn't see it that way at all. People are wearing their Sunday best. That's not trying to ingratiate yourself with the power structure. That's a statement of defiance. That's a statement of opposition. It's a demand for dignity. published a picture of myself running in a beautiful street in London, feeling the wind in my hair. That is Massey Alinejad. She's, actually, she's the last person to need someone else to introduce her. Okay, go ahead. Hi, this is Massey. I'm uh, from Iran. I'm a journalist. I'm a campaigner. But mostly I'm a troublemaker for my government. I'm a badass. (laughs) Massey is also something of an online phenom. She's got millions of followers. And that photo she mentioned of her running in London started a massive movement. In that shot, taken in 2014, Massey's wearing an orange jacket, jeans, a toothy smile, and her long, dark hair is like flipped up behind her, still airborne as she descends from a bouncing step. When she posted this photo, women back in Iran left heartsick comments. They were envious of the freedom The Iranian government requires women, by law, to wear hijab. And just a refresher here on terms. When I say hijab, it means that you have to cover your hair in all your body according to Sharia law. And chadori is more strict uh, version of hijab. It means that sometimes you have to cover your face as well. Touched by the feedback she received, Massey posted an even more daring photo. This one had been taken in Iran, where she'd removed her hijab in direct defiance of the dress code. This snapshot sparked a firestorm. Other women took similar photos and sent them to Massey to share. 
and soon she was buried in photographs. She uses these images to call attention to the plight of women living under the Islamic Republic of Iran. You've talked about the dress code as the most visible symbol of oppression. Can you explain why you think that it's so important to this government? Look, I'm going to just ask a simple question. When you go to my beautiful country, Iran, how are you going to understand that this is Islamic country? Through us, through women, because we are the one that we carry the most visible symbol of Islamic Republic. So basically, when Islamists take over the regime, the first thing that they do, they write their ideology on our bodies. Massey, we've been talking about the compulsory hijab policies, but obviously there are women who choose to wear the garment of their own volition, right? Look, I'm, I'm going to actually make it clear that my dream is to walk shoulder to shoulder with my mother who wears hijab in Iran, in, in the West, without being forced, both of us, to take it off or to put it on. That's it. I mean, both of us want to be our true self. We don't want anyone else to make decisions over our own bodies. In Western countries, women are sometimes harassed for wearing clothing that isn't secular enough. And a lot of European nations have formally restricted women's head coverings. A woman's agency is hemmed in on both sides of this debate. Given that so many fundamental freedoms are restricted in Iran, like female vocalists can't sing a solo for a mixed audience, married women can't obtain a passport without their husband's permission, people sometimes ask Massey, why focus so much on the dress code part of it? If you don't wear hijab from the age of seven, you won't be able to go to school. You won't be able to go to university. You won't be able to get any kind of, like, driving license. Not at all. If you say no to compulsory hijab, you won't exist. And that is why, for us women, it's not about small piece of cloth. It's like the Berlin Wall. You know, when we are fighting against it, it means that we want to tear this wall down. Then the rest will get easier. For Massey, freedom of dress is very much related to freedom of thought. When I live in a country that the regime do not allow me to choose what I put on my head, the same regime won't allow me to uh, control what's going on inside my head. Massey now lives in the U.S., in interviews, she often wears a white and yellow flower pinned above her left ear, and she comes off as comfortable, self-assured. But her personal choices have had serious ramifications, even within her own family. Yes, my mom wears hijab. But my mom is a woman who is not forcing other women to wear hijab. My sister is. My sister like was forcing me and other women to wear hijab because she was educated by the system that you have to take other women to heaven by force. As she sees it, Massey had to fight to reclaim her personal freedom, first from her family, then from society, and eventually from the government. And others have paid for it too. The regime actually went after my family, arrested my brother, interrogated my mother, brought my sister on TV to disown me publicly, you know, uh, that shows that how they're scared of our revolution. These women who send videos to me or going in public protesting against compulsory job, 
they know about the risk. They know that this is going to be punishable by the regime. One of the women is only 20 years old, Sabah. She received 24 years prison sentence, more than her age. Another woman, Yasaman, she's only 22 years old and she received 16 years prison sentence. And I remember the day when I heard that, I felt guilty. I was like, what I'm going to do? I'm going to shut down this campaign. But what happened immediately, their mothers joined the campaign. Their mothers actually made a video and saying that now we are the voice of our daughters. And to me, these women are like Rosa Parks of Iran. What Rosa Parks did is an example for us because now we are suffering from gender apartheid. When Afghanistan fell to Taliban forces in 2021, Massey started receiving images and videos from Afghan women too, bearing their hair or wearing white to protest mandatory dress codes of the new regime. Women of Iran and Afghanistan are the same. They don't want to be victims. They became warriors. They are now waiting for someone to go and save them. They want to save themselves. When you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you get dressed, are you doing so with an awareness or a solemnity or a gratitude because of the life that you've lived before where you didn't have the freedom to adorn your own body? That's such an amazing question, and I'm going to be very honest with you. Um, Actually, my husband is listening now. (laughs) Every morning when I wake up, when I see myself in the mirror, I say, oh, my God, you have such a beautiful wife. Look at me. I'm so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in the States, relatively free to dress as I liked and pursue a career in music. But in my early days as a rapper... I was so afraid of being accused of leveraging sex appeal to get the job that I wore oversized men's athletic wear on stage, like baggy hoodies, beat-up sneakers, and I didn't care much about fashion. A certain aloofness about clothing was almost a way to signal I was too busy being a serious artist. It's uh, sort of like the humble brag of announcing, oh, I don't have a TV. But fashion isn't something that you can opt out of the way that you can Dancing with the Stars. Even going naked would amount to a fashion statement. Dress codes reinforce group membership. You know, like, we're Amish, we're nurses, we're straight-edge punks, we're golfers. Clothing signals or challenges our social identities and our status. It's powerful stuff, man. Fashion is important enough to society for governments around the world to get involved. A few hundred years after Queen Elizabeth I proclaimed that purple silk was for the nobility alone, President Barack Obama asked young black men in America to pull up their pants. We care about what we wear and what others wear because it's shorthand to understand how we relate to one another. And if there's one thing that remains endlessly, desperately fascinating to humans, it is other humans. All right. While I change out of my podcast finery, Man, bandoliers is itchy. Richard was kind enough to indulge me in a little lightning round on his own personal style. Do you own Crocs? Crocs, no. (laughs) What do you think about adults in onesies? No, no, no. Unless it's (laughs) Sean Connery and Goldfinger. Suits with tennis shoes? Yes. Oh, I don't think you mean that at all. Camouflage in urban environments? (sighs) Not for me. And secretly not for anyone else. 
Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. And it's hosted by me, Dessa. Find me online at Dessa on Instagram and Dessa Darling on Twitter. See you next cast. A crowd of people can feel electric. Everybody plugged into some shared circuit. Feelings are amplified. Voices rise together. Body movements sync up. Next time on Deeply Human, why do crowds move you?